Hudson is taken from page 1749, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. The word of the Lord. May we pray. Help me, Lord, to open your word that it may be profitable, that you may write it on our heart, and that we may love you more and more because you have appeared to us in your final word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came by the power of the Holy Spirit to give the Holy Spirit to each of us that we might love you and love your law and love your people. Hear our prayer, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Sometimes people will say, well, if we're not under the Old Testament law, what do we look to for civil government? And the answer is this. The pagan world knows God. In some sense, there isn't a single solitary soul on the face of this earth who doesn't have within him or herself a remnant of the image of God. Human beings are created in the image of God. It's a marred image. It's a shattered image. It's an imperfect image what's left in us, but by virtue of having that image of God in every single human being, there is an innate, intuitive, before experience, awareness, not only that there exists a supreme being, but that the supreme being is the Lord God who created us. Everyone knows that at some level. And so when you preach to people who are pagans, You're telling them something they already know, but they don't want to face. And that is, they know the true God, not in a saving way, but in a basic way. And the second thing that they know, as we see here on page 1749, the Gentiles who do not have the law, that is, do not have God's written law, revealed in Sinai, revealed in Scripture, they don't have it. But what do they have? Well, in a basic way, intuitively and instinctively, before experience, they know right from wrong. They know right from wrong. And so that's why people hate Christianity, because Christianity confronts them with something they already know. You see it very clearly here in verse 14. When the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. So whoever you're talking about, from Donald Trump to Joe Biden, uh, from the governor of Texas to the governor of California, Whoever you're talking about, the most primitive savage that lives in the upper reaches of the Amazon River, 
They have an intuitive, instinctive sense of right and wrong. And that's what we call natural law. And so all men everywhere, all women everywhere, have an intuitive, instinctive sense of right and wrong. And that's the foundation for civil law in every single government that ever exists on our planet. That doesn't mean that people can't suppress that truth. They do suppress that truth. But now I want us to look at something else. And that is Christ who has fulfilled the law comes to to establish that law in a very radical way. Turn with me, if you will, to the left, to the book of Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. And we see here that what all men know intuitively, instinctively, a priori, without experience, uh, uh, they, they know everywhere, we see on page 1227 this truth. And this is what we read at the bottom of the page, verse 33. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Now remember, everyone everywhere has a basic sense of the law of God. Morality that reflects God's own character. But this is what God says in verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. Turning the page. After that time declares the law, the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. There's something here more than that basic sense of right and wrong that all people everywhere have. And what it is, is a supernatural work of God taking what was engraved on stones on Mount Sinai and writing it on the human heart. I will put my law in their minds, I will write it on their hearts, I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. Now turn with me, if you would, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. And we're going to go up from 8 into the end of 7. The book of Hebrews, chapter 8. And we're going to go up into chapter 7. And you will find this on page 1870. Page 1870. Now notice... What he says here in verse 1, and we'll go up in a minute into 7. Chapter 8 and verse 1, page 1870. The point of what we are saying is this. The main point he's saying, this is a summary statement of everything I've been writing to you, says the author. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary. Notice how he describes it. The true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. And what is he saying here? Look over at verse 7. If there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, and now he's quoting Jeremiah, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them. 
declares the Lord. This is the covenant. Look at verse 10. I will make with the house of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their heart. Now let's see if we can see what he's saying. What he's saying is this. The very fact that Jeremiah prophesied a new covenant has profound implications for how we look at the Old Testament. And notice what he says in verse 7. He said, if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. What's wrong with the first covenant? First covenant's fine. Problem is, it's not suited for sinners. I'll say it again. First covenant is perfect. It's wonderful. It's fine. The covenant revealed by God at Mount Sinai is a wonderful covenant. But notice who God finds fault with. Verse 8 But God found fault with the people. The problem with the first covenant is they didn't have a heart to keep it. The problem with them was it was all external outside of them. And the problem with the first covenant lay with the people who entered into a covenant with God at Mount Sinai and who renewed that covenant on the plains of Moab before they entered the promised land. The problem is people. And the problem with the first covenant is, it's not a suitable covenant for sinners. And I can tell you this, I am a sinner. I'm not the sinner I used to be, but I still struggle with sin. I still come short of being what I ought to be. And that bothers me. But the beautiful thing is, because there's a new covenant, The new covenant is adapted for sinners, finding fault with them. And you know, as you read through the Old Testament, I read through the Old Testament at least once a year. And as I read through it, I come to these statements over and over again about God being angry with the people of Israel and God saying, I'm going to clean your pal out. I'm going to wipe you out. And uh, you broke my covenant and this is what's going to happen to you. You did this, this is going to happen. And all of God's covenants going back, except for the very first covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 15, all of them depend on human beings doing right. And it's like God's promise to David, which God keeps, but David's descendants did not keep. And they broke his covenant over and over again. The whole record of the Old Testament is, Woe is me! I am a sinner. I am undone. I cannot do this. It's contrary to my nature. And so God, finding fault with them, issues a new covenant. That's what he says. And, and this, is he, this is the covenant. He says in verse 10, I'll put my laws in their minds, and write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. What is in view here is the fact that as you read the Old Testament, it's pretty apparent that most of the people who were part of the nations of Israel and Judah, most of the children of Abraham, did not have a personal relationship with the Lord. Now, if you look at David, David's a terrible guy in many ways, but he's a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? It means that David, an Old Testament believer, had New Testament experience. Let me say that again. David, an Old Testament believer, had New Testament experience. But what did David do? A man after God's own heart. Well, when David took his eyes off the Lord, 
And, and when he decided, man, I got it made, it's time to sit back and enjoy life and just rest on my laurels as, as, a, as a godly man, he doesn't go out to war. He sends his people out to war. He stays home, living life in luxury. And one day he looks over the walls of his house, because houses had roofs, and that's where you go to stay cool uh, in the middle of the day. They'd often have a tent there. And he looks over there, and there is one of his, one of his most loyal soldiers who was himself not an Israelite, but a Hittite who was loyal to David, one of his commanders. And he looks over, and he sees somebody taking a bath. Have you ever thought about, what if they had never invented bathtubs? You know, the problem with human sin is not objects like alcohol. The problem is the human heart. And so David looks over there, and I'm going to tell you, she must have been a knockout because David couldn't get her off his mind. And instead of doing what New Testament believers can do right here on the 13th day of August, and that is take authority over the thoughts that come into our mind that are not healthy, that are not good, and that have within them death, instead of taking authority over those thoughts by the name and authority and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, David just said, well, let me see. I'm not going to eject that DVD. I want to wallow around to that imagination a little bit. And so David goes through all the imaginations. And the more he's thinking, the more he's overcome by the power of sin, which is in every single human being, even in those who believe. And what happens is, it isn't long before David sends for Bathsheba to come to him. And you know the story. It happened to be that she was at a very fertile time. Her husband was off fighting. And next thing you know, uh, she sends word to David, I'm with child. And uh, that is often for people a wonderful thing. I remember every single time that Sandy got pregnant. Well, we were so excited, except the last one. And at that point, we were surprised. And we, six years after the last child, we, we discover having another child. But we, we were happy, but we weren't jumping up and down because we were older people. But God blessed us with a special boy, uh, the one that lives in Memphis. So anyhow, that's often wonderful news. But then, you know, it's often very bad news. And sadly, because we live in a world where men are often creeps, I mean really bad. It's a man's world still, sadly. And men do oppress women. And men do turn their backs on women. And so when that word comes, David thinks, what am I going to do? Because remember, under the old covenant law, the penalty for adultery was death. And even though David's the king... David's aware of that law. And so he comes up with a scheme. And he sends for Uriah the Hittite. And he has General Joab send Uriah to him. And so as soon as Uriah arrives, said, so glad to see how things going in the war out there at Ramoth Gilead. And uh, Uriah said, well, okay. And he said, look, here's, here's some food and some wine. I want you to take this 
and go to your home, just next door, and uh, spend time with your wife and refresh yourself. And then, (laughs) people who are in deep sin don't want to hear this word, loyalty. Uriah was so loyal to King David, he said, while my lord the king's soldiers are in battle, I cannot do this. And so he camps out at David's doorstep. And then, you know the old saying, candy is dandy, but liquor is quicker, uh, said by Ogden Nash, David decides to do a trick. It's an old trick. It's how people have gotten people to do wicked things over the years, alcohol. And remember, the problem isn't alcohol any more than the problem is bathtubs. The problem is the wicked human heart. And so what David does is, he keeps giving Uriah more wine. Here, have some more! Come on, man, you need to have some more wine here. And he gets him soused drunk. And what does Uriah do? He sleeps there at the doorstep of David. So David then says, "Uh uh-oh. So he writes a letter. Now, if you think that politicians are not capable of murder, I want you to think about this for a moment. David writes a letter, and he seals it, and he gives it to Uriah. He has Uriah the Hittite take this very secret document in which he says to King jo- uh, to uh, General Joab, I want you to put Uriah the Hittite into the heat of the hottest battle. And when he gets close to the walls of the city, I want you to sound a retreat at a time when he can't retreat. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Do you think that presidents of the United States have ever done things like that? Do you think that presidents of the United States might have known that the Japanese were about to hit Pearl Harbor, but let it happen because we needed to help the British against the Nazis? you think that's possible? Do you think it's possible that a president of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt, told the Japanese uh, before World War I that uh, the United States would not mind if they invaded Korea and took it. Do you think a president did something like that? What do you think happens? What do you think when people have an agenda and somebody's blocking it? Who killed John F. Kennedy? I know. I talked to a man who worked for the man. Lips are sealed. It was, it, was the, it was the head of the mafia of the Gulf Coast. Why will we never know that? Because there are too many other pieces of the puzzle that expose people. Do you know there were three future United States presidents in Dallas, Texas on November 22nd, 1963? Three. Well, you know Lyndon Johnson was there. Richard Nixon flew out that morning, and George Herbert Walker Bush was there as well. Just strange things. History reveals human depravity. It does. We should never forget it. It reveals human depravity. And so David, a man after God's own heart, takes his eyes off the Lord, a man who was an Old Testament believer who had New Testament experience because he knew the Lord personally could fall into sin that's grievous and commit murder to cover up his adultery. So David's guilty of two 
capital crimes in the Old Testament. And so here's the deal. As you read the Old Testament, it's very apparent that with the exception of people like David and the prophets, by and large, the mass of the Israelites, the mass of the people of Judah, did not have a personal walk with the Lord. For them, it's external commandments here. It's a law outside of us. But what happens in the, in the New Covenant is that God takes those commandments and He creates a personal relationship with every individual who will come to Him and trust in Him. And He writes that law on their hearts. Verse 10 of Hebrews uh, 8. He says, I'll put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They will be my people. 11, no longer will a man teach his neighbor a man his brother saying, know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. And then look at the last statement in verse, uh, chapter, 18, chapter 8. Verse 13, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. So what can we say of the Old Testament? It's obsolete. Are you shocked to hear me say that this portion of the Bible is obsolete? What does, Saint, what does the writer of Hebrews, who may have been, uh, I won't speculate, but anyhow, no point in opening up one more can of worms without being able to keep the worms in, but the writer of Hebrews says, this part is obsolete. Obsolete. Wow. Going back then to Hebrews uh, chapter 8 where he says that, look at what he says in the rest of that book. As he says in chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And, and looking there at page 1869. Listen to what he says. And he's quoted there uh, in, in verse uh, 17, he's quoting from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is said about David's son, quoting Psalm 110 verse 4. And then he says, look at verse 18, the former regulation is set aside. Set aside. Why don't we have Levitical priests today? Why don't we bring lambs in here and bulls and goats and slit their throats as in the Old Testament? Why don't we do that? And the, and the reason is, in verse 18 of, of Hebrews 7, the former regulation is set aside because it is, was weak and what? Useless! Why was the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, useless? The reason it's useless is it's not adapted to the needs of sinners who struggle with sin and sometimes lose. And he says, verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And then he goes on about the Old Testament priest, and he talks about God's oath. And then he says in verse 22, because of this oath, Jesus has become guarantee of a better covenant. What can you say about the New Testament? It's a better covenant. 
Why is it better? Because it's adapted to the needs of weak people, of strugglers, of people who come short of being what they, they want to be and ought to be. And so then he says he's, he's the guarantee of a better covenant. Now look at verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But look at verse uh, 24. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Look at verse 25. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I want you to think that for a moment. The difference in this testament and this testament is that we have one high priest who lives forever and he lives to do what? He says, always lives to intercede for them. So when we're having accidents trying to get out of our house uh, after a discouraging day, the day before trying to work uh, for my presbytery, when you're having discouragements, when I've left my hearing aids and we need to make a U-turn in the highway and go back home to find them and not find them, and here I am, hopefully you'll look at me when you talk to me so I can read your lips. When I'm in the middle of that, I've I, I got to confess, sometimes, sometimes words come out of my mouth that shouldn't come out. And sometimes when I say those words, I say them in an angry way. And I'll say, <laughs> as when Sandy pulled the, the gas uh, pump out of the car. <laughs> and I walk out there flabbergasted because we had, had burned up too much of our gas when we were in Myra. I said, what have you done? <laughs> See, I need somebody to pray for me. I do. Every day, Sunday mornings, every day, pray for me. What have you done? <laughs> have I ever done something like that? Oh, I've done worse. I've driven off with a with the gas uh, fuel line uh, in the car and pulled it out of the pump. And I've done that not once, but twice. They now build those things so they disconnect. But it ain't no fun, and you've got to pay for it. So all I'm saying is, I need prayer. Do you need prayer this morning? Listen, we've got a priest, a high priest. He's better than any priest that's ever been on the face of this earth. He's the last and final priest. And in him we too are priests as we intercede for others. And he said he always lives to intercede for them. Now look at this, the next verse. Such a high priest meets our need. See, I can't meet your need. Why? Because this is not true of me. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Look at that next statement, top of page 870, 1870. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Once for all. That brings things of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not a re-sacrifice of Christ. Christ was offered once for all time. The Lord's Supper connects us with that once for all sacrifice. But when Jesus died on the cross, 
the sin issue was settled. It was never settled in the Old Testament. There was a reminder day after day. And then he says here, in the next verse, For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak, but the oath which come, came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. I want to commend to you my perfect Savior. Do you know the Lord Jesus? And I address again, as I often do, those who may be watching on the variety of means we have. You know, if you're honest with yourself, you know you come short of being what you ought to be. You're not the only one uh, who is struggling with sin. And you're certainly not the first person to think, well, I'm not like so-and-so. I'm better than she is. I'm better than he is. Listen. Be gone with all such thoughts. Deep down in your heart, you know that you have offended a holy God. And you're going to answer to Him one day. And I want to say, there is only one hope for you, and it's the same hope that I have. And it's not like a hope that's vague. Well, I hope one day I'll win the lottery. I don't gamble anymore. I lost two times years ago in high school. And, uh, but I hope to win the lottery. That's not that kind of hope. It's a sure thing. I know I'm going to be with Jesus when I die because He's my Savior because He loves me, because He died in my place. Do you have that assurance? Let me ask you that question as we close here. Do you know that if you were to die today, that you would go to heaven? Do you know that you can know that? How can you know that? You can know that for this basic reason. If you will turn from yourself and cast yourself on God's mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ, He'll receive you with open arms. All the Father gives me will come to me, and him who comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus will receive you just as you are. Why don't you pray right now, on the 13th day of August, this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I know that I come short of being what I ought to be. Would you please forgive me of all my sins, would you give me that new heart promised in the new covenant? Would you cause me to love your law, your word, your person, your people? Would you do that for me, Lord? Would you fill me with your spirit so that I might be empty of myself? And would you grant to me, in the course of time, full and complete assurance that I am a Christian and that I am going to go to heaven because I have a Savior who died on the cross in my place and who is living now, this very moment in time, when I'm praying this prayer, He is praying for me as well. Lord, hear our prayer. For Jesus' sake, amen. Our next hymn is hymn number...